All right. Notice the, the two Johns on that side. One made it on the platform. That's really good. Big accomplishment tonight. Uh, <clears throat> our first question we're starting with tonight, and he's actually going to lead it off. Um, it's in Joshua 2. What were the spies doing at Rahab's house in the first place, considering she was a prostitute? Working? All right, there we go. All right, uh, basically at that time in the Bible, uh, at a harlot's house was considered an innkeeper at the same time um, in biblical times. So with that, with the two spies, it was a good place for them to go hide because there were several people always in and out of that house. So it was a good, time, good place for them to go that it wouldn't be conspicuous for the two spies to be there. Plus, uh, this kind of different commentary that I've read, it was just a, uh, it was a div divine appointment by God that that's where God wanted them to go. And that's, he had planned that and had the faith of uh, Rahab. Uh, her faith uh, was tested that time and she uh, was true to that. So that's kind of what I have, fellas. You got anything to add to that? I think you could also think too, that um, if you were going into a strange city like that and you were trying to overthrow that city, you're probably going to be looking for someone who is not very highly thought of in that city to help you in that situation. Uh, and so if they're trying to find a safe haven for themselves, they're probably not going to go to a government official's house or something like that. Uh, they're probably going to go to someone's house who is pretty low on the totem pole, and that's what Rahab would have been. Uh, she would have been someone that wouldn't, was not very highly regarded. And like John said, being a house where people are coming and going constantly um, would have been a good place. And then also, too, when you think about the location of her house, because her house was built into the city wall, uh, that also provided an advantage there, too, uh, that they might have noticed that and said, hey, this is a good place for us to be because we can easily get out of the city. Um, I think what we have to remember, too, because, you know, I know the person, when they asked this question, they were kind of wondering, you know, why in the world would they be at that kind of house? Uh, the Bible doesn't give any kind of hint um, that the spies were doing anything immoral or improper, and so I believe we can trust that, that they did not go there um, for the wrong intention, um, that it was simply a, an advantageous place to go, and God had ordained for that to be the place they would go, because obviously we know uh, Rahab ends up being a part of Jesus's lineage. And so God used that, used this woman, transformed her life. No longer do you ever see her called a harlot anymore in Scripture, um, or, or she, you don't see her living out that lifestyle anymore. Instead, she marries, she becomes part of Jesus's genealogy. And so it's all in, in God's will, God's plan. All right. Well, I'll, I'll move on. You're going to add something else. You can kind of raise your mic there. No, I was going to ask okay. the next question because you get to answer it. I so, okay. <laughs> uh, the next question uh, that we're going to cover tonight is: Is it unscriptural for a Christian to be cremated? Okay, and I, I typed mine up, and I'm going to read it because I don't want to say anything wrong or say anything that I didn't mean. So I want to handle this. Make sure I handle this very clearly. Uh, but the Bible does not give any specific teaching about cremation. There are occurrences in the Old Testament of people being burned to death, that's 1 Kings 16, 18, and 2 Kings 21, 6, and of human bones being burned in 2 Kings 23, 16 through 20. But these are not examples of cremation. And it's interesting to note that in 2 Kings 23, 16 through 20, burning human bones on an altar desecrated that altar. At the same time, the Old Testament law nowhere commands 
that a deceased human body not be burned, nor does it attach any curse or judgment on someone who is cremated. So cremation was practiced in biblical times, but it was not commonly practiced by the Israelites or by New Testament believers. In the cultures of Bible times, burial in a tomb, cave, or in the ground was the common way to dispose of a human body. And that's found in Genesis 23, 19, and 35, 19, and 2 Chronicles 16, 14, and Matthew 27, 60 through 66. While burial was commonplace practice, the Bible nowhere commands burial as the only allowed method of disposing of a body. Is cremation something that a Christian can consider? Again, there is no explicit scriptural command against cremation. Some believers object to the practice of cremation on a basis it does not recognize that one day God will resurrect our bodies and reunite them with our soul and spirit. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 58 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. However, the fact that a human body has been cremated does not make it any more difficult for God to resurrect that body. The bodies of Christians who died a thousand years ago have, by now, completely turned into dust. This will in no way prevent God from being able to resurrect their bodies. He created them in the first place. He will have no difficulty recreating them. Cremation does nothing but expedite the process of turning the body into dust. God equally able to raise a person's remain that have been cremated as he is the remains of a person who was not cremated. So the question of burial or cremation is within the realm of Christian freedom. A person or a family considering this issue should pray for wisdom, James 1, 5, and follow the conviction that results. Uh, when I was reading and thinking through this question, um, you know, the only places we see embalming in Scripture mentioned by name is whenever uh, Jacob died and whenever Joseph died. Um, and so when we think of burial, we often think of the process of embalming. Um, but the, the, the burial method that was used in Jesus' day, basically the way they would bury a body is um, they would carve a grave, much like you probably know um, just from Jesus' burial. Uh, they would carve a grave out of a hillside cave-type structure, and inside that cave there would be um, shelves. If you walk in the grave on the right-hand side, there would be shelves. On the left-hand side, there would be shelves. Right in front of you, there would be shelves. And those graves were shared. Um, they, were, they were family burial sites. And so when a person died, they would wrap that body in cloths and in spices, partially, mostly to contain the smell uh, because of the fact that that body was going to begin to decompose very quickly. You can think about when Lazarus was raised from the dead. You remember that Jesus went to the tomb three days after he was buried, and they said, don't roll away this stone because the stench is going to be extreme. Uh, they would wrap them in the spices to keep the odor down. They would lay the body on a shelf, and then they would close the tomb up. They would seal the tomb, and they would wait a, a set amount of time, months, um, for the body to decompose, and then they would go back into the grave, take the bones, put them into a box called an ossuary, and then leave that box on a shelf in the grave, and then free up that shelf for another body to be placed. Um, and so when we think about burial, we think about digging, digging a hole in a grave site and putting a person in a casket. Um, and so our picture of it is completely different than there. And so I agree with Bart that the Bible doesn't specifically tell us cremation or no cremation. I've heard the argument before that, uh, that cremation doesn't honor the dignity of the human body, and I can, I can see that. Um, but at the same time, because the Bible doesn't give us a specific command, I think Romans 14 basically tells us that in that situation, 
We have to give grace to one another, pray through it ourselves, come to the decision for our own family that we feel like is best and honors the Lord and, and honors the life given to, the, given to us and then follow the Lord's will for us in that moment. I think you get like 10 points, grab a word for that. Carnicerary, is that what you said? What did you call that little that little area? An ossuary. Oh, there you go. See, I heard something. I didn't know what that was. All right. It's New bones word. in a box. Yeah. Bones in a box. <laughs> New name. So, just remember bones in a box. All right. Question three. Uh, what is apostasy? And can Christians be guilty of apostasy? Okay. Um, when we think about the word apostasy, we think of the, the, the common definition we think of as someone who was a Christian and who then denied the faith and walked away and then no longer was a Christian. Now, when we say that word, that's what we think of. We think of, of a, apostate as someone who, who basically forsook their salvation, who, who, who denied, threw it away. I'm no longer, I was once saved, I believed I was saved, and now I'm no longer saved. Um, and that's what we generally think of. When we say that, and when we call someone an apostate, that's what many people would think of. But I would think that um, to say that would mean that you can lose your salvation, that you could do something in order to lose your salvation. And the truth of Scripture tells us is that, um, is that there is nothing you can do by choice or by sin in order to lose what Jesus has done. The Lord tells us that He has us in His right hand, and nothing can take us out, and that nothing includes us that we cannot do anything to remove ourselves from the hand of Jesus. And so when we see people that we might would assume lost their salvation, I am more quick to think that that was an individual that was not saved in the first place, an individual that was professing faith but did not genuinely have faith. I think about, for instance, uh, Judas. Judas appeared to be a disciple. He appeared to be a genuine follower of, of Christ, but we all know from the Word of God that he, he wasn't. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, if you've got a Bible, turn open to Hebrews 6. There's a passage in Hebrews 6, 4, which, which gives us the idea of apostasy, but I want, I want to explain how I believe we can look at this passage and see that what it can be referring to is, is not losing your salvation or throwing away your salvation, but instead revealing that you never were saved to begin with. Hebrews 6, verse 4. I'll wait till I hear the pages stop turning. Hebrews 6, verse 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Um, that makes apostasy in the sense of losing a salva your salvation sound possible, but I think what the writer of Hebrews could be describing here is, in fact, a false believer, one who claims faith but is not genuinely saved. Um, let's just think through what he's saying here. He says, he says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, I believe what he's referring to here is those who have heard a clear presentation of the gospel, they may understand the gospel, they may agree with the gospel factually. They've been enlightened in that sense. They've gained the, the understanding and the knowledge that could lead to salvation. It says they tasted in the heavenly gift, 
and shared in the Holy Spirit. Even lost people can taste of what the Holy Spirit can do by simply being around believers. A lost person who is in the in the body of Christ is in the in the in among the believers, among Christians, will will experience the power of the Holy Spirit working in Christians, and in a sense can taste the heavenly gift, can share in the Holy Spirit in that way. Though they did not receive the Holy Spirit, they can they can receive the benefit of being around others who have received the Holy Spirit. It said there that they taste the goodness of God's word. I think what that's referring to is that they that they have heard the message of Scripture and they understand the blessing it brings. That even for a lost person, if they live according to the moral code of Scripture, there will be a positive effect of that, correct? There is a positive effect that comes with simply living by the moral code. Now, that's not enough to get you into heaven, just living by the moral code. But they, they taste of the goodness, and it says they taste of the power of the age to come. In other words, they've seen the power of God at work in the lives of others, and maybe have even seen God answer their own prayers. Now, when we think about that, that could, that could describe Judas to the T. He was enlightened. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He tasted of the heavenly gift. He watched Jesus perform miracles. He, he, he ate of the bread and the fish that was created by the Lord when he fed the 5,000. He, he tasted the goodness of God's word. He, he tasted of the powers of the age to come, but yet he was a false believer. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, talking about those who departed from the faith. And John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be, become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, and you all have knowledge. He's saying that there are those who departed from the faith, and by doing so, they revealed the fact that they never were saved in the first place. They put on the appearance of godliness. They put on the appearance of salvation, but they were not genuinely saved. And by their departure, they showed it. And so... When we come back to Hebrews 6, and it says there that it's impossible to report, re- return that person to repentance, I want you to think about this. Um, if someone has grown up in the church, and they've been around Christianity all their lives, and they might have made a profession of faith, but they really weren't genuine about it, and there comes a point in their life where they become a skeptic and they walk away from the church, those individuals are generally very difficult to lead to the Lord. Because they, I, I don't take me wrong when I say this, but they, they, they think they know too much. They think they have all the answers. They think they have all the solutions. They've heard all the things, and they say, oh, I know all the answers. And it becomes very difficult to talk to those people because they, they've already made up a conclusion in their mind um, that would be different than if you go to someone who's never heard of the gospel before. And so it becomes very difficult to convince that person that they need to receive the gospel genuinely. But I would add this, that God can do the impossible. And then what the Word of God says here is impossible doesn't really mean impossible. It simply means in our sense, in our aspect of it, it seems impossible, but God can save anyone. And God is fully capable of leading anyone to the Lord. And so I don't want you to read this passage and become discouraged by it and say, well, I know people who fit this description, and so I guess it's just impossible that they be saved. Um, I don't think that's the case because I think, I think our Lord can, can convict anyone. He can break anyone's down and, and build them back up uh, through salvation. Um, you know, and so no one is beyond being saved. Anybody else want to add to that? Well, I can just add a personal experience. So I got to thinking about it when we talked about it and what 
Jeff said, but um, my personal experience with two, uh, just that I was close enough to really talk and have conversation with, and I'll just share one of the stories, but both of them, it was anger. They were anger, angry at someone, that, and I feel like they were. this was their way of rebelling a little bit or uh, trying to punish family members. Uh, this one particular story is um, a pastor friend of mine, very good friend of mine. Um, he was in a really terrible church situation. I mean, the church basically was split, but no one left, and business meetings were terrible, and a lot of screaming, and a lot of things going on, and it was a very small town, and everyone knew. Um, and basically, after he left the church at that church after 10 years, you know, it had done a lot of damage to the family in a lot of different ways they were covering for. Um, but he ended up, that pastor, um, had, had a, an affair and divorced his wife and all of that. And this is his son that I'm, I'm sharing about. Uh, he was, I think, seeing uh, that bad church experience that he had as a child and as a teenager. And then his father, who he admired so much, failing. Um, I think he placed his faith more in the deeds of man than in of God that was bigger than the situation he was in. And we've had deep discussions, but this was a pastor's son uh, who I know accepted Christ. I was there when he did, and um, I saw fruits of his um, doing so, you know, but he was a typical teenager at the time. And, uh, but now he would say he's no longer a believer. He's an atheist. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think it's just because he's angry at his father and the church experience he has. So I'm hoping he'll come back to realize that's what it is. So. At the end of the day, I think what we have to remember is um, um, only two people know if you're saved, the Lord and yourself, um, and that, that's it. And so sometimes we may want to write off someone and say um, they're saved, or sometimes we want to assume that someone is saved when they're genuinely not. Um, you know, and so I, I believe we have to approach those kind of situations prayerfully, and that if someone has walked away from the church, um, I, I think our, the gospel is always our first approach, uh, because even if they are saved, they still need to be trusting in the gospel, and their life demonstrates that they're not. And so I think the gospel is always a safe place to begin, um, because they, they need to be reminded, if they are saved, they need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the fact that they were called to surrender their life to the Lord, um, whether that's for salvation or whether that's for continuing sanctification, it requires that we surrender our lives to the Lord. Okay, I'll go on to the next one, and John Bills is going to answer this one. Why did God allow the Pharaoh's sorcerers to mimic God's signs? For example, rods changed into snakes, water changed to blood, Mimicking the frog plague. Uh, Is this so? Yeah. 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 All right, I'm sorry. Um, you know, when I volunteered to answer this one, I thought it would be easy. And uh, the more I studied it, the more difficult it got. And my. My game plan here is not to confuse y'all, but just to, to bring it down as close as I can. About those plagues, first of all, uh, they were designed by God to remind Egypt that he was God and not Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was the number one God, and then all these others represent the other gods. Uh, uh, the tenth uh, plague, the one where the 
firstborn would die was aimed at Pharaoh himself, who thought he was the first and uh, son of the god Ra. But now, and then the Nile River was worshipped by them, and because that's where they got all their food, and they, they worshipped that, because that, and then they worshipped frogs, because that was a sign of fertility, and, uh, but uh, we're going to look at those threes, and before I go any further, there was something that happened even before Moses got back to Egypt, God was talking to him, you remember he had a burning bush experience there, talking to God, but uh, God was telling him what he needed to do, and he said, you will be God to Pharaoh, and what that meant, you were representing God, and I'm giving you the ability in your hand to take the staff and, and cause it to become a snake or, or touch the river and make it turn to blood. Uh, so he was, uh, in behalf of God, going to Pharaoh, and of course, he had to take Aaron with him because uh, Moses would be like, you and I would be very afraid to do this because going before someone like Pharaoh you would suffer a lot of consequences if you did not come through true. Uh, but this is something that God told uh, Moses before he ever left to go to Egypt. He said, you go and tell Pharaoh that you and the children of Israel want to leave for three days, take a three-day journey to worship me. And then God added this. He said, but Pharaoh is not going to let you go. God knew beforehand. So what we're looking at in this is the sovereignty of God working in all of this situation. Uh, the children of Israel had made a mistake by when they went to live in Egypt because of the, the, the drought that had happened during the time of Joseph and, and how he brought them in there and put them in the land of Goshen. And they became very comfortable there. And it was not God's plan for them to stay there because his plan was for them to go to the land of Canaan and, and, and inhabit that. So they were in the wrong place. So he needed to deliver them from this. So he goes through this series of the plagues that he brought on them on, uh, during this time, the ten of them, before they finally relinquished and but then changed their mind. And you'll notice if you read through these ten plagues, you'll see... Pharaoh deciding to let him go, then he'd change his mind just to, uh, as soon as the plagues left. But now let's look at the plagues, and I'm going in my Bible to uh, Exodus chapter 7. And as you read these, uh, as I read these, you'll be hearing something that happens in each one of them. And right now I'm in uh, where Aaron and uh, Moses come before Pharaoh. Now, in order for them to approach Pharaoh, they had to show that they had some godlike powers. So God had said, that's what he's going to ask you to show, that you have godlike powers. And he said, just have Aaron take his rod and put it on the ground, and it will turn into a snake. All right, so uh, he has done this. Now, let's see here. I'm going to verse 10 and 13 of chapter 7. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called, called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, and they also did in the like manner with their enchantments. Now, the word enchantment there is up for debate as to what it meant, whether they were using trickery or actually Satan was uh, giving them some sort of devious power. And uh, the question was, why would God allow this to happen? And you'll see this. For every man, uh, after that, that, they did their enchantment. Verse 12 says, For every man threw down his rod, that's the sorcerers, and they became serpents. But 
Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now, here it is. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. All right, so that's the first trickery they did. And because of that trickery, they said that's what kind of pushed uh, Pharaoh in the position of saying, no, I don't trust you guys because my guys can do the same thing. So I don't know if I can believe you all or not. But it's uh, understood that uh, some Egyptology tells of the story of how those magicians and sorcerers could take a large snake and hold it in such a way by its head that it would paralyze the snake. Uh, no, remember that next time you come and encounter a snake, just grab him by the head and paralyze. But then he would, uh, they would hide that in their robes, and they would have their staff and then swap and throw the, the snake on the ground, and it would come alive. And, of course, uh, God's rod, and this is what you're seeing in this, the sovereignty of God. Each one of these that they mimicked, God overrode it and uh, just kind of did away with it. And I'll show you that. Uh, now, let's move to the second one that's uh, turning the water to blood, and that's found just a few uh, verses later, verse 20 of chapter 7. Um, they had been told that you just hold your, uh, the rod out toward the, the, the Nile River, and it will turn to blood. Now, I'm trying to find verse 20. There it is. Well, uh, it's been telling us that when they did turn it to water, uh, the water to blood, the Nile River, the pools, the ponds, uh, buckets, the water that was in buckets turned to blood. And if you had a stone uh, vessel, any water in it, it turned to blood. So it was all turning to blood. So it messed up their economy because that killed the fish, and that was a terrible situation. Verse 20, and Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and all the water. Uh, and the rivers were turned to blood. All right. Now, verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantment, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So you see, in uh, God's overriding sovereignty, he is allowing Pharaoh's heart to get harder as he goes along. Now, there's a very big caution in this as you, as you study this. And it shows you, and there's a verse that's found in uh, second, uh, not second Romans, but Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It says that when you harden your heart, you're hardening that heart to receive and stand under a heavier judgment. If you, the more your heart gets hardened and you keep saying, I don't need it, I don't need it. Uh, and this is what's happening to uh, Pharaoh. And it, uh, in chapter 1, you can read that in Romans. It says, if you continue to do that, God just pushes you in to your sin. If that's what your heart is and that's what Pharaoh is doing, and this is what you see God doing, he's pushing Pharaoh deeper into the sin because he has a purpose. Uh, now, he would not that any would be lost, but uh, he already saw Pharaoh was not going to relinquish or not repent. Now, let's go to the frogs and look at that. In chapter 8, this is actually the second plague where the, uh, God shows them the God of their fertility is worthless. Um, and I want to go to, I guess, verse 15. Uh, let me start at 14. They gathered them together in heaps after they, uh, uh, Pharaoh said, I, please take the frogs and, and stop, stop all this. And, uh, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them. 
as the Lord had said. So once again, uh, you see, Pharaoh himself was hardened his heart. It didn't say God hardened his heart, but he hardened his heart. Uh, now, there were times when God says he, his heart would get harder, and they were not able to replicate the next plague, which was the uh, fourth one, about the lice. Uh, the lice were taking over everything and everybody, and the, the magicians tried to do that, but they couldn't. But now you notice this about his plagues, the plagues that they replicated. They were making more trouble than they were helping. I mean, if you had a bucket of water, how precious it would have been. And then here comes the fellow, and he turns that to blood, too, and you go, oh, quit, stop, don't do it anymore. We need the water. But then the frogs, the frogs were coming in everywhere, and here come the magicians bringing in more frogs. And they, you were at a point where you didn't want to see any more frogs for a while. So they were actually hurting the, the cause and, and causing more problems than they were actually helping. But uh, this, is, this is one thing about... Uh, Pharaoh's heart being hard. And your question right now is, why did God want Pharaoh's heart to be hard? And that's what you're thinking right now. He wanted them to let him go. And I'm going to uh, chapter 9, verse 16, because God in his infinite wisdom said, y'all will be asking that question. And he's put the answer down in here. And he's talking to Pharaoh right here. God is. But indeed, for this purpose, this is 916 of Exodus. For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So God brought about all this havoc in Egypt so that his name would be praised in all the earth. This is all showing the plan of redemption going on that he had planned before the foundation of the world, that out of Israel, the Redeemer would come, and he was going to be born, and... Uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So that's what he was setting up and all of this so that the Savior would come. And you say, that's pretty rough. That is hard uh, a thing to do. Uh, so why was it so hard? And this is in keeping with his plan of salvation. All that you see here, you remember the 10th plague? Uh, how were the people saved that, were, uh, that went through that plague when the death angel was going to pass over? They put blood on the doorposts of their house and on the lintel, right? So uh, that would be you had blood on this side, blood on this side, and blood up above. Like the cross. It was a picture of the cross that was drawn in the blood. Of course, the blood of Christ was represented in all the sacrifices that were done. Uh, now, why is it so hard? Why did it have to be this difficult? I can remember a, a situation that I went through uh, once uh, I worked at Social Security, and a family came in and said, our mother is dying. She has liver cancer, and she's not a Christian. And I said, well, have you shared the plan of salvation with her? Has anybody been over? I said, yes, they have, but she just cannot pray the sinner's prayer. I said, can I go talk to her? And they said, please. So I went to their house in Marion, and uh, she was ashen looking, uh, uh, laying on the couch there, this lady. And she didn't have long to live. So I shared the gospel with her. This is the gospel plan. You know, we're all sinners and we're saved by grace. And, uh, and I said, is there any reason why, why right now you cannot pray to ask Jesus in your heart? And she said, I can't. And I said, and I looked at her daughter who was standing there. And she, I said, why can't she not? And uh, the daughter said, it's because she says it's just too easy to say, I believe 
and therefore I am saved. And so I had to ask God. I said, well, God, how do I answer that? And this was the answer that I, I have from this. Tell her this. It was not easy for Christ. He paid it all. So accept what he did. And I could see a light bulb come on. And she prayed to receive Jesus right then. And that's what we had to look at with this. Our salvation was not easy. And we see this through here. And we see, too, that the more we harden our hearts, and we see people who harden their hearts against God, they are sealing their fate because there will become a time when they cannot say, well, I've changed my mind. Uh, and once your heart gets too hard, I don't think you can. So be praying for those folks. Anything else? Going to the next question. Does God change his mind? In reading Exodus in our foundation's plan, Moses claimed in Exodus 32, 11 through 14, to have entreated God to change his mind against destroying his people. And it says that he did change his mind. Is this poor translation, or can our prayers actually change God's mind? If he doesn't change his mind, then why does it say he did, and what does this mean? You want me to read this next part, Jeff? Or, okay, you're going to do that. Okay, Jeff's um, going to lead off. The passage, I, I'll go ahead and read it. It says Exodus chapter 32, verse 11, that Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them on the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever." And the Lord relented from this disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. When I think about the idea of God changing his mind, changing his plan, I think about some passages like Genesis 6. And when it talks about how God became so um, broke, brokenhearted over the sin of the earth that he's re regretted ever making manki mankind uh, because of their sin, and so then next we find the flood. I think about Genesis 18 when Abraham pleads on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah for Lot's sake. And he goes through that whole thing where he says, if you find 50, if you find 40, if you find, you know. And God says, if, okay, if you, find, if you find this many people, I will relent. I think about Jonah chapter 3 where God has the intention to completely destroy the city of Nineveh. He sees the city repent, repent and he chooses to do otherwise. He had had the intention of, of destroying that city and he he. He instead does not pour out his wrath. Um, but when we think of God, we, we think of, um, we, we often say that he is an unchangeable, that he's unchangeable. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not, has, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so there in Numbers 23, 19, it says that God doesn't change his mind. Um, R.C. Sproul says in that passage that change his mind means to repent. And so oftentimes when we think of changing your mind, we think of repenting. We think of, of, of changing what you're going to do um, and turning and doing something different. Um, but when we think about God, I think what we need, a couple things we need to remember. Um, the fact that God is unchangeable doesn't mean that he doesn't move. It does not mean that he doesn't act. 
It does not mean that he is static. Um, God can and he does act, but when he acts, he always acts according to his will and according to his way. Anything he ever does is always according to his way. And so to say that his mind does not change means that he does not change his character or change his will. When Numbers 23, 19 says that, it's saying that he has nothing to repent of. He's not going to change his mind because he's not mistaken about anything. There's nothing for him to turn away from. There's no decision he needs to change because he suddenly realized something he didn't know before. You know, when we pray, when we think about prayer, we have to remember that prayer is, we're not informing God of things he doesn't already know. You know, I mean, if I'm going to make a decision, let's say that we decided that I decided I was going to buy some house and I had made the decision in my mind that I'm going to go buy this house. But on the way to go sign the contract for that house, let's imagine that I got a phone call from someone who said, hey, I went by that house and the roof is leaking, the hot water heater doesn't work, and there's mold on the walls. That information would likely cause me to change my mind and no longer decide to buy that house, right? Because it was things I did not know. When we pray to God, we are not telling Him anything that He doesn't know. He knows all. He's omniscient. He has all that information. But when we consider the act of prayer, we are petitioning God to step in and to act according to His character, according to His way, and that He most definitely will do. And so, no, God does not change His mind in that He does not change the way He thinks but we can and have the ability to pray to God and ask God to intervene in situations. Uh, in James 5, it tells us that the, the fervent prayer of a righteous person has great power when it is working. And so that passage tells us, and Scripture shows us, um, that there are definitely instances where the, where the people of God prayed and God chose to do something differently. Not that he was repenting from what he was going to do. He had the right to do what he was going to do. But because of something, he chose to act according to his character in a different way. And so to believe that prayer doesn't change things, to believe that prayer doesn't um, do anything, it doesn't change what God would do, um, I'm afraid would push us down a road of fatalism which fatalism is the idea that everything is already predetermined, so why do we do anything? Because it's all going to happen the way it's going to happen. You know, everything's already been mapped out, and that's not, I don't believe that at all. I believe that conflicts with the idea of free will, which I believe the Word of God teaches us. Um, and so when we think about prayer, we need to understand that, that prayer, prayer does change things. That when, when God's people pray, God does act. And also, too, I think, um, not to make this more confusing than it has to be, but I think we also have to remember this. Um, God does not live in time in the same sense that we do. We think about life in, in the, the fact that we are in time, correct? We live inside the realm of time. But God does not. He is above time. He, he, is, he is the creator of time, but He is not constrained by time. He sees all that is going to take place, and He sees it all in one instant, right? This is kind of difficult to, to grasp. I, I, don't even, I don't have a very clear understanding how this works, but um, one way I've kind of thought about it is, um, take, take this. If, if you are driving through a city, let's say that you went into a large city, let's say New York, and you are driving through the city, all that you can see is what's directly in front of you, correct? You see the roads ahead of you. You see the traffic light in front of you. You see traffic, 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 traffic. You're not going anywhere. It's New York. Um, and you cannot see where you're going. 
um, all you can see is that one moment. Um, now, imagine if you were standing on top of a giant skyscraper looking down at that same car. What do you see instead? You see the car, but you see the road way far out. You see what was, where it came from. You see where it is going. You, you see from above time and can see all of it at once. And, and so I think that's how God sees things in that we see in the moment. But He sees above the moment. He sees where we have been where we are and where we are going, and He sees it all at one time. And I know that's very difficult to think about, but when we pray, we are praying to a God who is outside of time. He's not constrained by that. And that whenever, whenever He acts, in a sense, He's revealing part of His plan in that moment. And I do not believe that everything is mapped out and everything is fatalistic. and that we are, it's, I believe that, in a sense, God's will is kind of like this big highway and that sometimes for his children, he does give us choices that are all within his will. And sometimes as his children, we're going to choose that which is outside his will, but somehow he's going to bring us back around. He's going to put a detour in front of us, and he's going to lead us back to the right path because all things work together for the good, for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. And so does God, does prayer change the mind of God? Yes, it changes what God might do. He will act according to that, but... No, it's not causing him to believe something different than he already understood. So, anybody want to add to that? I, I love that. I immediately thought of the Jonah story. You brief, you mentioned it briefly, but look at what God was teaching Jonah. I mean, you know, when he uh, he preached that Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and when God didn't do it because the people repented and turned away, Jonah was mad. He had been saying this the whole time, and it made him look like a liar. You know, so he was furious mad. And so just you look at that of a lesson, God teaching us, you know, um, how he works. So uh, that's immediately what I thought of. I think we got one more question. We're going we're gonna to do, do this one quick. You think so? I, I think I, I got can. like three pages. Three pages? Yeah. I, can put I got one page. Here. I'll answer it because okay, I got can. one page. Does that sound good? I got, I got some good stuff. <laughs> Go ahead. No. You, I'll read the question for you. Why does God not condemn polygamy in the Old Testament? Why did God not chastise leaders in the Old Testament who had multiple wives and concubine when today we know it is a moral destruction? Uh, yeah, Solomon alone, 700 wives, 300 concubine. Wow, what, and he was a wise man. So I'm waiting to hear your answer to this, Kip. <laughs> um, when we think about that, this is kind of, it is a difficult subject because you wonder why in the world did God not do something? Why did he not say something? Especially when we think about the New Testament and, and um, the husband of one wife, all those specific commands um, there. But I do believe that God does condemn polygamy in the Old Testament in the fact that he, in Genesis, laid out marriages between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Um, now, Things don't always work according to plan. Sin enter the world. Divorce happens. Things like that happen. Um, but we also see clearly that every instance in which polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament by God's people, it did bring moral destruction. Uh, when you think about Abraham's household, there was tremendous conflict between Hagar and Sarah, between Isaac and Ishmael that came about because of the fact that Abraham had two wives. Uh, when we think about Jacob's house, there was all kinds of problems in Jacob's house, from the wives to the kids. It was a mess. When you think about David's house, his house was a wreck. 
I mean, it would be a reality TV show today. <laughs> I mean, if, if David lived today, there would be a reality TV show um, about David's house because it was a, an absolute mess. And Solomon, you're right, is the prime example. Um, 700 wives and, and concubines. And, and, um, and, and you see the result of that because what happened to Solomon? The wisest man on the earth was led into idolatry. Uh, and his, his life was a mess at the end. He, he was taken away from what he could have been a tremendous king, um, but instead his, his kingdom was a mess. And so I think what we need to remember is when we think about the Old Testament is it is a testament that God still works through sinful people. That if God only worked through perfect people, he would have no one to work through except for Jesus. I mean, there would, be no other, there would be no other story in the Bible because there, there's no such thing as a perfect person. There's no such thing as a person who has not sinned except for Jesus Christ. And so I think we have to be careful to, to associate because God chooses to work through something that he then um, condones everything that they do that he then gives a rubber stamp of approval to every single thing that they do and say that it was not sin when in fact it was because the Bible testifies that he works through imperfect people and still brings about his plan. So, Anything you want to add, Bert? Well, I'll just add something just real short just because, I, I mean, you covered everything I was going to cover. Um, but uh, I just thought one thing. I tried to find why possibly uh, God allowed it uh, in the Old Testament times, and the only argument I could find for it um, is for that of provision, protection for women in the day because they had zero rights, um, and so they had to depend on men to protect them and provide for them because there was no way to make a living on their own in the Old Testament times, and um, so that was the one and only argument. I don't know. I mean, they also condemned, they said, but they said oftentimes if there wasn't a man to protect and provide then usually women ended up in prostitution or slavery, and so are starving to death. Um, so that was the only argument I could find about that at all, while it was allowed, not condoned, but allowed. And a lot of the men had been killed in all those battles they were fighting all the time, so there were more women to go around than men. <laughs> so. Well, thank you all for being here tonight. We'll wrap up with that. Um, it is about 7 o'clock. I know there were some questions we were not able to get to. Um, we did kind of prayerfully consider all the questions that were sent in and kind of took them in the order they came and then also kind of looked through questions that we felt like covered multiple things. And so uh, the ones we were not able to cover, we're going to try to answer them in a couple different ways. We're going to try to put something on the website, maybe on fa our Facebook church group and different things. We'll also probably look at doing this again at some point in the future. We feel like it's been good. Um, if you continue to have questions and, and want to talk about the Bible, um, you can continue to send those questions in to questions at fisherville.org, and, and one of our staff will reach out to you and would love to talk about those things with you. We are here for you. This is part of our ministry is uh, helping people to understand the Word and how the Word applies to your daily life. And so please don't hesitate. Uh, that's what we are here for. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father God, thank you for your word, that it gives us answers to the questions that we have every single day. And I pray that you can make us, give us a desire to want to keep digging, to want to keep knowing, to never be content um, with just having questions, but to want to have them answered from the word of God. And so help us to learn even more how we can dig through it, how we can understand it, and how we can apply it. Father, bless us as we go from this place. Keep us safe and bring us back together. 
the next time for us to worship again together. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.